Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Under the Hood, Part 2, Breakdown of the Economy, which really is a natural follow-on from Breakdown of Truth because there is nothing truthful or real about the economy uh, that we find ourselves dealing with right now, and it's getting crazier by the minute. So toward the end of understanding it, Zeus and I are going to take a snapshot from 100 years ago and talk about what's literally forming right now a hundred years hence. It's absolutely fascinating when you look at these large cycles and how the economy reacts to it. And it'll all make sense by the time we get done with it. This is probably going to um, probably going to facilitate the need for another one, part two of part two, because there's so much to talk about and we really want to spend some time on rebuilding the solutions, which we have done in a couple of other shows uh, on Gaia and I think one here on reginamerith.com, but we're going to be looking at it in a fresh way that is taking the current times into consideration because we're in wild times. So Welcome, Zeus. Um, hey, the, you know, you and I were looking into this and we started seeing these patterns um, of dates emerging and they're inextricably intertwined with events that we can't deny. And it just shows you how, in a sense, truly corrupt uh, our existing economic system is. And I'm not saying that in a conspiratorial way. I'm saying it was founded on some unsound principles i.e. greed, and we're going to have to transform that. So let's go back to what happened in 2007, 2008, just really briefly, because we'll touch on it again, and then go back 100 years to 1907 and 1908, okay? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the basic principle that you'll see developed throughout all of these different episodes for the last 100 years is the notion of one, like you mentioned, Regina, greed, but two, this notion that <clears throat> of consolidation of wealth and power, which has been throughout history, but the way that it's being done is a little bit different. A technology of creating organization around financial systems that would pr privatize all the gains and publicize all the liabilities, okay? And they learned how to do this over this 100 years, and we can start <clears throat> with uh, 1907 and 1908. Okay, so it's always an uh, we win, you lose scenario, basically. Right. Well, this is how they learned it. They bailed themselves out in 1908, and they decided, hmm, what if we can have the public bail us out? So 1907, there was this big panic. Was it created by you and me? No. It was created by what they call chop shops. Again, people willy-nilly barring investing in 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 you know trying to get wealthy which has always been an american dream unfortunately it's been greed tinged i thought and, jp morgan was involved in that too uh not so much well well certainly in the solution but yeah I'll, i yeah, will banks banks were definitely responsible for lending money um a lot of the stock market is being unregulated basically you had a panic created by uh, uh, excessive borrowing. I don't think it was broadly public, but then it created a financial crisis within the system because some of those were defaulting or were, were not paying off and they had a cascading effect as these always do, these panics and runs. People didn't trust the financial system. They caused a run on the banks, right? So people started pulling their money and this is how, almost always how it works. And JP Morgan, <clears throat> convince these banks to to go ahead 
And uh, he put a lot of his own money into it. To bail, to bail out the situation. To bail out the situation and it convinced other people to also put their money into the system to stop the bleeding. So they said, wait a minute. We need government to step in because we don't want to be using our own money to do with our own problems created by our greed. We need the government and eventually the U.S. taxpayer to be the ones that go ahead and bail all this out. So that's when in 1913, you had the Jekyll Island meeting of the, which was J.P. Morgan's little resort thing. Well, let's, go back, let's go back just a year or so. Right before that, in response to that, they somehow manipulated within the government to create, I think it's called the National Monetary Authority, right? Right, it was the move into nationalizing and publicizing the risk, right? under the guise of protecting everybody. Oh, the person on the street can't get money for their payroll. The same thing they're saying 100 years later. It's basically, exactly. they're, they're holding a gun to the head of the American public saying, Joe Public is gonna be burned, they won't get money from the bank without ever asking the banks themselves to be responsible or ever reeling in these corrupt practices of unregulated banking. So that, that's where Jekyll Island, that's where the meeting on Jekyll Island in 1910 comes in, where all these banking families, they didn't even use last names. Very secretive affair. Actually, E.G. Griffin wrote a fabulous book called, if you haven't already read it, everyone should read it, called uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Right. And so take it on and riff from there because that led to the foundation of the Fed. So tell us right. what happened. So they, they had the secret meeting of six major, in, in, you know, influential financiers or financial people on J.P. Morgan's own Jekyll Island exclusive estate. And it, that's where the beginnings, uh, Paul Warburg was the one who really was the mastermind of this. Uh, of the policy that came out of this. I think he was a major writer of it as well. And what happened then out of that came this notion of creating a central bank or Federal Reserve for the United States. Now, people have to understand, even though it calls itself the Federal Reserve, it is non-governmental, it is private, and it represents the biggest banks, not you or me. They call it quasi-governmental now because the the chair of the bank apparently is nominated by, I think, the president or certainly the con and approved by the Congress. So there's some notion of oversight, but it's really not in their charter to serve the government and they're not a governmental agency. But really. Let's look, let's look right. at it. Let's take that for a moment and then fold in the notion of the IRS and our taxes and how that interfaces with the Federal Reserve before we move on from there because the timing of this is kind of exquisite in a creepy way. Well, the IRS doesn't interface directly with the Fed for the most part. It is a tax collecting organization. And again, income taxes came around that time too, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's, a, it's a tax collecting organization for the running of the US government, you know? So-, so That borrows from the Fed though, right? No, um, the government borrows, the treasury borrows from the Fed now yes. to run its operations right. and then charges us the interest and then gives that to the That's Fed. what I'm speaking of is that little yeah. chain right there. Okay, good. So yeah, and the Fed, I got that straight the now. The Fed leans to member banks, especially the big ones, at almost nothing. 
and then essentially charges the government to print their own money. During the big downfall in 2008, all these tens of billions of dollars owed by these major banks due to their own irresponsibility and tanking the entire world economy was paid back by interest on the money we lent, they lent to us based on what we gave them. Right. So literally, we gave them money. They charged us interest to give the money back to us and then use that interest to pay off all the debts from all their bad deeds. Right. And the bad yeah. deeds is the part we're about to get into here because right. the Federal Reserve is established in 1913. America right. enters the European theater in World War I in 1914. Right. And one thing we know for a fact is that these banks loaned to all sides in a war. This is big money making for them. So war yeah. has always been a huge money generator for these families, these private right. banks. So that was. That was 1914. We're right. now, we have the Federal Reserve, we're loaning to all sides. What's the implication of that? Well, again, what you see is a de development of a global elite, which has no allegiance to any country. You have the development or the precursor of the multinational or transnational corporation, which sees the development of profit and setting the rules of one country against the rules of another, in the case of war, just Frickin' fund both sides and make double profit, okay? With no allegiance to humanity, to civility, to any kind of virtue, to any kind of health, any kind of peace. In fact, war is great business, so you have a stimulation to do that. And I would even do a modern day an analogy, modern day so-called healthcare, I call it sick neglect, okay? Right has the same thing, create fear, create need as if it's in a war, trauma, to get people to pay skyrocketing premiums, then in the fine print, make sure that they don't get any treatment so you don't actually pay anything out. Right. So basically the, the, the whole idea here is just to continue to publicize again the, the liabilities that for us would be premiums or whatever bailouts and then privatize all the games. Okay, to move on from there, it's now the end of World War I, and we've just been through the, the 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic, 1918, 1919, and now uh, you don't ever read about this, but there was another depression that followed that pandemic and followed the war in uh, 1921, correct? I think it was, wasn't it 21 to 24, somewhere yep. in there? Yeah, 1921, another depression, which interestingly, which is, I'm trying to, I wanted to talk to you about this to see where some of this meets what we're going through today exactly 100 years later, because here they had just finished a pandemic, pandemic and people wanted to essentially cut loose, feel freedom. They'd been through a war. They were pretty devastated. Um, they'd been rationing. They'd been saving and scrimping. And now everyone wants to cut loose. And we're into the roaring 20s. Now we're sitting here at the beginning of the 20s again, 100 years later. Let's talk about what happened then. And then we'll keep progressing our story. Well, I mean, the thing that the only thing that I saw about it was that it's not really ever mentioned. The interesting thing about it is that it seems to mimic in many ways what's happened after the pandemic in 2020. Yeah. There is this mini crash, right, that happens. And then there's a bailout uh, that rescues the market from itself. 
er earnings dive off a cliff and all this money being pumped in pumps up the stock market in the greatest divergence ever in the history of the US stock market between actual earnings and the price of a stock. It completely artificially inflated. There's no demand, so forth. So what happened after World War I is a little bit like what we're experiencing now. After their Spanish flu, after our pandemic, the initial response is to want to recover quickly, even through artificial means, and to say, oh, it's glad this thing is over, the war is over, the pandemic is over, let's go out. And you see that now with everyone just saying, I've had enough of being inside, even though yeah, it's let the cocktails flow. I want to just be free. Yeah. Um, and then what happens is that that creates its own set of problems. Now, that, it, back then it was recovered. It looks like it's being recovered now, you know, though we will see what happens with this pandemic. But it's setting up a systemic problem. Just okay, as it so was back then. Yes, and the systemic problem back then led to the Great Depression um, at the end of the 20s and into the 30s. And, you know, many people are talking about the fact that the U.S. is being set up right now for a repeat of that pattern, but perhaps a little bit ahead of schedule. But yeah. let's continue looking at the fundamentals as we progress forward, went through the Great Depression, uh, suffering all around, great suffering in Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. um, now we end up, we find ourselves back in another world war. Now we have been, uh, we're, we're splitting our efforts uh, to the east and west, and we are now back in World War II. And this is now starting to change the complexion of how business is done societally in America and how money is moving. So talk to us a little bit about that, because this is going to lead directly to Bretton Woods, okay? I will, but first I want to say that the World War II is a direct result of the Depression and the reparations yes. that were demanded from Germany that came after World War I. It was really an extension economically of the great want and manipulation and abuse that occurred in the First World War. From that the, explain that, that a little bit. Well, that extraction after funding both sides and after war you have devastation, so you have to rebuild but also in Germany, they were asking Germany to pay war reparations, which meant in addition to building their own company, paying other people for the damage they did to their country, putting an enormous stress on the German economy and making the ground very fertile for fascism. Well, right? it did. And in addition to that, it's important to note once again that the same bankers funded Hitler as funded all sides of the war. We right. have to keep this in mind. There is no morality when it comes to money and the right. greed at the top with these large banks and families. They right. were funding Hitler and they were funding France and they were funding the U.S. war effort, money to be made all the way around. And so right. let's talk about where that led us and how the U.S. ended up in the position they did at Bretton Woods. Yes, well... the. What they began to do is the nascent or beginnings of understanding disaster capitalism. If you can create want and suffering, and you have a little removed from it, as the United States was across the ocean from the better part of the war, you put yourself in a very powerful position. You can lend to people who are desperate, again, whole countries, not just people, whole countries, okay? And you can make yourself the center of power. You can use all the desperation and trauma to grab a central position in power, and that's exactly what happened. After World War II, everyone was devastated. You're, you know that the English economy was devastated, the German economy is devastated. 
things are being split up. East Germany, West Germany, chaos, devastation, poverty, want, okay? And the United States is removed from this for the most part. Their financiers have helped to, ha helped to fund the war. To a certain extent, you know, they have supplied things and even economically in terms of trade. But we're, for the most part, our, our shores are not touched. We're intact. We're strong. We're not the ones that got the disease. We're not the ones who experienced the impact. And so what happened after the war is the United States is the lender, essentially. And because the war had so much stolen gold and was insecure, people moved all the gold reserves over to the U.S. Now, the U.S. didn't actually own those reserves. They're, quote, custodians of that gold. <laughs> okay. But it was as if they owned the gold. Okay. Well, this brings us to the timing-wise moving along chronologically. We're now almost at the end of World War II. 1944 was when Bretton Woods happened where the U.S. dollar became the reserve currency. Explain the implications of that because right after that, on the heels of it, right at the end of the war was the foundation of the United Nations. How does right. all this work together? Well, here's what's happening. First, with Bretton Woods, United States was a stable country. It hadn't been attacked. It was the world's greatest economic power, even at that time, for the most part. I mean, Japan came out of it being a very big power, and there are several others. But if you looked at it, for the most part, we are the emerging power and continue to be, um, even though we're falling on a little bit of hard times now, a lot of people are. But what happened then is that because the United States wasn't devastated, they had the financial resources intact, they had a lot of the gold reserves, they use that position of strength to say the world currency should be pegged to the U.S. dollar. It became the reserve currency for the world. How did they get the rest of the world to buy into that, by the way? Was it just in everyone's best interest economically at the time? Well, it was the only secure country around for one. Okay. okay? And it was backed by our own productive abilities. And we are a resource-rich country. I mean, just look at our natural resources alone, it's amazing. And of course, we had a half to, by some estimates, two, uh, three quarters, we'll just say two thirds of the entire gold currency. So it was located in the United States at the time. So, so it just made it look like literally we were one big bank for the rest <laughs> of the world issuing yeah. the currency. That's what it looked like. And also, people were realizing that these internecine co uh, conflicts were creating great devastation. They wanted to create, quote, peace through the United Nations just a year later. But it was also, you, you got to know that there were secret meetings behind closed doors where people were saying, how can we use this rationale for peaceful internationalism to create a global financial system that allows us to have powers past the borders of countries, and then also integrate our entire supply lines, integrate our, our money concentration across the world. I think this is where you really begin to see the, 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 the so-called global elite begin to realize that they had more in common, okay, than they had with their fellow country persons. I was just going to bring that up. I mean, people are so afraid of globalization and bandy it about a lot, and it, it's at the base of a lot of conspiracy theories, but the reality is globalization began then. Yes. It, I mean, it, it's been in effect all along. And it was war that thrust it, and it was trauma, both in World War I and World War II, that does it. And you see a pattern of that. Big movements are made. You and I have discussed this. 
That's also when the military was integrated. It was a forebear of civil rights of 20 years earlier. That's when women and Rosie the Riveter started to first, that first shot across the bow of women's independence and getting into work because they had to be the ones building the planes, submarines, and so forth, while the men were off fighting. Bombs, so, yep. So there's always, there's always a tug of war between these two an opportunity for consolidation, manipulation, and all kinds of conspiracies that aren't really conspiracies or business plans, frankly. And then also the turmoil and trauma create and mixing up and creating these opportunities for advancements in other ways, the roles of women, integration of African-Americans, Hispanic, and so forth into armed forces that then becomes a forebear of doing that in the overall society and workplace later, about 20 years later. So right. It's both, but again, we have to be careful to recognize and be critically aware of how that history is moving us in a particular direction. Okay, so now we come out of World War II, America relatively intact. We have the world's uh, reserve currency. We have the GI Bill. Everybody can buy a home. Everybody can have an education. Uh, suburbia uh, starts developing around the country. Um, you know, uh, kids have everyone has enough so to speak you know we've been through the rough times and now is the rebuilding and so the 50s were you know leave it to beaver era uh, nobody was really rich per se nobody expected that they were going to gain um hugely on the average person didn't expect to gain hugely on some kind of stock market scam people put money in the bank and saved and even in school they had these little savings account uh, booklets where uh, the kids would put a quarter in their booklets and start learning how to save by the time they're in second and third grade. So saving, um, being industrious, um, rebuilding was really the hallmark of the boomer, the beginning of the boomer generation of the 1950s. It was a good time, but it was also very conservative in nature. And then we come up into the 60s. So let's well, talk about... Well, yeah. it was culturally conservative, but it was socialist from an economic standpoint. It was socialist. My yes, irony exactly. about it. 50s is romanticized as like, the, as like the era of white bread capitalism. It was exactly the opposite. It was government welfare and socialism that gave GIs the ability to get educated for free. That means taxpayer supported. That's socialism. It was, yes. it was you know, it was... It, it, wasn't until, it wasn't until later that we did Medicare and social, I mean, social security and Medicare became sort of part of that movement at different stages. But again, um, and, and FDR started that, you know, and again, FDR started that during the progressive era in the thirties and forties, but it really became of age during this post-war era. You know, people had protection and insurance against poverty when they were old. People had some degree, especially older people, uh, some kind of Medicare. And it stabilized the country. And then underneath, you had all these young GIs being provided with homes and these suburban, uh, 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 I guess, uh, subsidies to do suburban homes and home ownerships and government agencies to support that. And of course, the whole thing with education. Now, you have an educated populace, they're going up. And all of a sudden, the 60s comes along. You have an educated populace, a lot of prosperity, and you have the introduction of women in the war and integration. And all of a sudden, people start saying, wait a minute. They start looking at the social disparities between men and women, between black, 
and, and others. And that's where a lot of the culture wars and the social turmoil of the 60s came. And that's, yeah, and that's fascinating because uh, right after the war, and again, as you say, these social programs, which would commonly be called a socialism, right, these programs allowed the country to rebuild to such an extent we actually did have peace. We had enough abundance and security that people could start looking around and assessing their situation for the first time. Right. And women by this time had become educated. They were becoming educated. And we um, were starting to insinuate ourselves into the workforce because we could. Um, and we learned that strength and power, a lot of them through our, my grandmother's generation in World War II, who were really kind of forced to go to work to kind of keep the war effort going. That created some independence and some self-confidence in the women in this country and around the world and certainly in Europe that we didn't have prior to that per se, that meeting technology as well. So here we are, now it's the 1960s and people are looking around, they have kind of enough and now comes kind of sex, drugs, rock and roll and free love and uh, divorce and even more so, Aaron Russo, I did, he only did two interviews. I did one of them. He is the Hollywood movie producer. He became famous for his production, The Rose, way back then with Bette Midler. Um, but he went on to start really working with a social conscience. And at the end, he created a documentary called America from Freedom to Fascism. Now, this was 15 years ago or so when I got this interview with him. And what he told me, he was, because he was a big shot in Hollywood, he was dating one of the Rockefeller daughters. And he was at a, a dinner, private dinner one night. And I don't remember which of the Rockefellers, uh, whether it was David, John, or whose who's daughter, but he was having a private dinner with them when they said to him, you don't think women's liberation was an organic movement, do you? He said, we were completely behind that. And he said, to get women into the workforce doubles the tax rolls. That was the goal of women's liberation. So all of these various iconic figures came out and started representing kind of the broad-burning movement that was happening at the time. Right. And I'd like you to talk about it because you really studied deep. You went, you went into feminist studies. I did. And, and, and there's an analogy here back yeah. in Bernays. You're, a lot of your audience knows Edward Bernays, the father of public yes. relationships and the father of U.S. propaganda. And he was and the nephew, nephew of, of Freud. Freud <laughs> nephew of Freud. Um, had this campaign where he's trying to uh, attach women's desire for freedom and vote, right? Yeah. To smoking brilliant smoking cigarettes torches of freedom is what he labeled them yes and he had a bunch of women just in a parade publicly just saying women's strength independent and having them smoking it was massively successful you know virginia slims is a later example of that well the whole women's movement especially liberal feminism to get women into the workplace is supported as well in very much the same way you are self-sufficient, you're strong, et cetera, et cetera. But what does it do to the workforce? It creates a whole nother level of competition which suppresses wages. And who do you get to pay 60 cents on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar for doing the same work? Oh, women. To this day, women are only making still, I think, in the upper 70 cents on the dollar for the same work that guys are. It's gone up from about 50 cents as an improvement. It's not the same. So now you have more profits. Now you have more competition. 
and the labor is by far the most, the highest cost, the most comprehensive cost in anti-capitalist enterprise. So basically, it was a genius move on the part of profiteers to ensure that they pay the least amount on their, by far the greatest cost, all under the guise of liberation. <laughs> hmm, okay, I'm not saying it doesn't have this double thing, it does. Because now women are more self-sufficient, they can get out of abusive relationships, divorce does go up, it doesn't just go one way or another. That's why they don't like a lot of conspiracy theories. They make it only look like there's one aspect. In almost all historical movements, there's both aspects. There are productive aspects that change, even trauma and war change and create happen. And then there are ways at which people use those changes to create power imbalances. And, exactly. And, and, you know, so so we, have to, we have to look at that. And right around that time too, remember, we had the Voting Rights Act. We had the Civil Rights Movement. We had the war on poverty, right? Uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. We had the Clean Water Air Act and Clean Water Act in the early 70s. And we're going to get into this, but we also got off the gold standard that time too. Well, that's where I wanted to go because now yeah. comes 1971. Uh, mm -hmm. women, women are out there. We're educated. We're now uh, feeling free to leave relationships that don't work for us and take the kids with us. But now we also have a larger burden of figuring out how to insinuate ourselves in a fruitful manner into right. the workforce when we're being paid less than men, which creates poverty for a lot of single women and their children now. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. So now we move up to Nixon. It's 1971. What happened in that whole mix in the economy that took us off the gold standard? And what was the uh, significance of that? Well, it, the, the problem was baked in when they started in the Bretton Woods to put the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. The U.S. dollar had a set rate of exchange. You get a certain amount of gold for each dollar. Okay, That exchange was set. But dollars are also a commodity. And everyone was buying U.S. dollars because now they're the reserve currency. So the price was set in terms of his relationship to gold, but the demand for the dollar skyrocketed. This created a, a, an unsustainable and unsustainable separation between demand and value to the point where it got, it got to a critical point at a certain point where Nixon took the U.S. off the standard because they just couldn't maintain it anymore. They basically said, now the dollar is backed by the faith and credit of the productive aspects of the United States itself, our labor, our resources, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's going to be the basic uh, underlying collateral, if you will, okay? So, so now you've untethered money and you're moving money from connected to actual commodities and goods that you can exchange to, to essentially a fiction and a belief and a faith. That's what I was going to say. It comes yeah. down to fate. It comes down to faith and yes. so forth. From that point forward, there's nothing yeah. real at the core anymore. Well, there, there is, but it's non-material and it's not terribly specific. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and again, there's a good aspect to this. We are moving more and more from a materialist, grounded, you know, tied into material to a more and more virtual world 
that has its problems. We already know that people not being able to, with your uh, a previous thing about truth, not being able to distinguish virtual reality between it, empirical or concrete reality and virtual reality, belief and actually what can be proven over here, what you want to believe in, what you are feeling versus how you're being manipulated, okay, by propaganda techniques over here. So we're going through that part right now. But what we saw in 1971 was that I think one of the benchmarks toward moving from a material economy to a non-material by unmooring the value of money from an actual physical commodity. Okay, now to continue that story, uh, their credit started becoming available to the average person. Now, yep. prior to this, you saved and you bought with your savings. However, somewhere along the line, people were able to get loans from their local savings and loan associations, for example, to buy banks or to do maybe improvements on the farm or tied them over. And even cars, you could get financing on cars even in the 1970s, for example. But by the time the 1980s hit, it's a whole new ball game. Um, they're sending high school graduates credit cards in the mail. People that for the first time feel like, woohoo, you know, it doesn't have to be grounded in anything but my desire. Now, this was a really big, I think, turn for America. And it has huge implications. And I'd love for you to explain that. Well, you went from deferred gratification based in sound savings and preparing for the future toward, quote unquote, making a bet on your future, grabbing your dream now, and then financing it backwards. Okay, think about the complete inversion of mentality that creates that. One says the moral strength and deferred gratification, responsibly saving up, earning it, right? And then, aha, you've got the prize at the end. The other one says, buy it now, you need your dream. Why wait, right? Especially material goods. And then working your way backwards with interest, oftentimes minimum statements, and interests that are way above. That's what I was going way, to say. Way, way above. Obscene. Bank obscene. lending rates. Yeah. Obscene. 18, 19, 20, 24% interest yep. on these yep. credit cards, for example. Yep. So, so. So now, again, another kind of aha moment comes in for financialization. They realize you can make a lot more money off of charging people interest than you can out of productive activity. Instead of just lending people money, like you do with a private equity, or not private equity, a home equity loan. <laughs> we'll talk about private equity later. But a home equity loan, oh, you know, it's not going to be that much more than what it costs to finance a home. It's in the low percents. It's five, six, seven, eight, you know, jumped up a little bit during the high inflation times of the 70s. But it's a lot less than credit cards. And the fees are a lot less. So it is getting people hooked on credit pays a lot more. Okay, it's a much more of a profit producer, more fees, much higher interest rates, and it goes on and on. So getting people addicted to credit, and even a lot of people are funding now during this COVID crisis, their homes on credit cards. They don't have to do it. I and, know. And so that's yeah. creating its own special kind of want and problem. Debt balloons and has gone pretty much exponential since that time. And we became debt slaves at that time as a nation. We, we just did. 
sucked it up with a big straw because we did, we did, and, we did and want remember, that. Hmm? Yeah, and remember during the 80s, that was the greed is good. We're we going to that right now. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Yeah. Reaganomics. Yep. Uh, Walls, the movie Wall Street, Gordon Gecko. And right. this now, right to this day, these are the people that we tend to idolize and put on the cover of magazines. Right. Let's talk about what happened when we shifted to flat out greed is good. What happened was we were steadily being led down the primrose path, right? From virtuous savings and helping your kid and war bonds and da da da. You know, we're, we're literally, we're putting the effort out there. We're scrapping together, volunteering with scrap drives. We're, we're, we're being service and volunteer in order to produce something that's going to make the future better and more possible, right? We're investing sweat, we're investing money into the future. That become inverted both morally and financially into grab from the future. We started during the Reagan era beginning to borrow money. We, were at, we became a debtor nation. Instead of lending money, we started to borrow it. Instead of saving money, we started to spend it and started accessing credit. And so we got into this almost orgy of materialism. Greed is good and supply-side economics, meaning if we just pour, if the government pours money into big companies, it'll trickle down. Do you remember that one? Trickle-down <laughs> economics, yeah. From the top, not as they did during the 50s and 60s with the GI Bill and those subsidies from the bottom up. All of a sudden, it was big, huge multinational corporations who aren't even loyal to this country being subsidized by the taxpayers from the top down. Well, that money, as you well know, didn't didn't trickle down. Unions were devastated. Reagan went ahead and took care of unions with the traffic controllers, air traffic controllers. And all of a sudden, there wasn't, the power at the bottom was almost gone. Right. And it was either taken away or people were distracted and addicted to credit, which made them debt slaves and which made them women and men. This is what, it's what I will say. In the early 70s, one full-time salary, usually with a man at the time because it was a more, you know, sort of traditional age, could finance a car and a house. No problem. That wasn't, you know, 30% of your salary and a decent house and a decent place. We, we talked about you, how much you paid rent, even in San Francisco was ridiculously low back then. I, you could, I was ahead. the receptionist bookkeeper and I had an apartment in San Francisco that was only a quarter of my earnings and I made very little. Right. Um, I mean, it was a different world than what everything that's happened since then. We, we figured out that same apartment probably will, would be 50 times as much. At least. Today. Yes. Yeah. So At think least. about that. One middle-class family, one job working full-time, nice, you know, suburban or whatever home, one car, now you have two parents working full-time, can't even afford a home, <laughs> much less a car, much less the skyrocketing cost of higher education, all of which was driven by credit. So Once now- credit came into the system, everything just went crazy. The house yeah. price went crazy, uh, medical expenses went exponential, and so did tuition for higher education, exponential. All the really set investment in the future costs went crazy. 
out of sight to which two people working full-time couldn't do what one person working full-time could do. Okay, so that goes on, that drunken binge, well, it continues to today, but that went on, and then ultimately with the deregulation, with this unreality of instant gratification and just really almost incomprehensibly slimy deals happening um, in the banking sector, we land in 2007, 2008. And yep. so let's talk about that because that was a time where a correction, we, we needed a correction and correction should have happened. Right. So back in the Reagan era, through that deregulation, through that top-down structure, all of a sudden the big boys are calling the shots and they're sending lobbyists to Washington and they're making the rules more and more and more and more favorable. And it doesn't matter if it was a Republican. Yeah, it went to George Bush Sr. and then Clinton. Clinton was one of the big banks and telecommunications best friends. He signed a bill that deregulated all of that, allowing huge consolidation, huge monopolization of finance, huge monopolization of communications, media, and so forth. So we go into the Y2K crash that didn't really crash, but we had this tech stock mania that went down, okay? We went into a series of manias, right? Now greed was good. That was now a virtue. <laughs> so the whole idea is pump things up and then dump them, right? Pump and dump, pump and dump. And if anything comes back to haunt you, if you are a major corporation or major hand fund, you say, I'm too big to fail, too big to jail. You got to bail me out. And that's exactly what happened in 2007 and 2008, right? You had the conversion of all these manias built on the housing bubble, built on all these exotic financial derivatives, which are just bets on bets, just phony financial things meant to generate fees and interests. You had people giving out unregulated insurance in the form of credit default swaps and other things. Credit default swaps are simply a form of insurance without any money to back it up. <laughs> risk insurance, that's what a credit default is. It's risk insurance. If this person defaults, we'll pay you out. Oh, by the way, we don't have any money because it's unregulated. <laughs> Sounds like a good scam to me. You well, know? we see what happened. Everybody kind of remembers, you know, in horror watching what their there was the, I think it was Magnetar and others realized that they could set up the collapse and profit from it. Since it was unregulated, you could have triple A rated stuff that was junk. No one was regulating it. So you literally could create a portfolio and set it up to fail by making it look like it's AAA when it literally is triple F and you can bet that it would fail and you would know that that pet would pay off because you knew that underlying value of that was junk. And right. so basically you, that greed got to the point of destruction, creating and engineering destruction for profit, disaster capitalism. Disaster capitalism. So we get, we, here it is, everything's burst, you know, uh, the economy's tanking, the market fell to half, um, the housing market fell to, the prices fell to half and so forth. But, and now, now we're, we've gone from Bush to Obama, doesn't matter who gets bailed out once again. And this is something that I think a lot of people have never gotten over. Those banks never had to pay a price. They, they never, never paid, paid price. Only never we paid. They were never even investigated, much less charged. Mm -mm. One of the greatest failings of the Obama administration from both conservatives, progressives, liberals, libertarians, 
was the fact that no one was ever held accountable. And that remains the rule to this day. If you're too big to fail, too big to jail, you literally will be bailed out even if you're criminal, even if you're civilly liable. That was the message. It's called moral hazard, but I think that's a very weak term. It's just corruption. Just call it what it is. Monetary corruption. We no longer have capitalism. What we have is socialism for the very wealthy, corporate socialism. You'll be bailed out by taxpayers anytime you make a bad decision. And, cap and capitalism for us, uh, I guess you would say, uh, unkind capitalism for the rest of us. But if they make money, does that money actually come to us or come to the government? Do we get repaid back? The answer is no. Okay, now let's move forward. So we started recovering, housing markets chugged back up again, and you know, it all inflated back up, by the way. They inflated back up again, exactly. <laughs> and so now here we are, uh, 2019, 2020, 2020. Now we have um, the pandemic, we have COVID. Uh, for whatever COVID is, we're not arguing what it is, where it came from, or anything like that. We're talking about the impact it's had on the economy. The economy started tanking and falling off a cliff once again. Interestingly, not the stock market, but the actual real world economy. And let's talk about that because, again, the same thing happened. Who was bailed out first? Who got all those trillions right off the top? The same people Obama bailed out, the Trump administration bailed out, and every administration bails these same corrupt, truly corrupt players out again and again. And even before that, there was one of the biggest tax cuts in the history of the United States passed by the Trump administration a couple of years earlier, I think 2017 or 2018, right around there, which gave 84% of its benefits to the top, either, I think it was 1%. Yes. So it was just a huge giveaway to people who are already ridiculously wealthy. And it was no. passed off as a tax cut for the middle class. It was not. No, then, it wasn't. So it, we have a development of this just consolidate and give more wealth to the top. So when this crash happens, if they watch your Gaia interview with me, we have a graph on that. And right. I have it in one of my articles as well. You saw actual demand and earnings of the stocks go like this. And then you have this infusion of money that has the stock prices go like this. The two are completely uncoupled, completely uncoupled. And not only that, you have governments bailing out, not just bonds, but junk bonds, non-investment grade bonds. For the first time in its 107 year history at that point, the Fed is saying, hey, we're going to basically be bailing out the entire economic system as long as you're a huge, powerful multinational corporation. Not only junk bonds, which should be the thing that fails because they're not investment grade, but things like Carnival Cruises, who are basically defunct companies that are never going to come back. They're what they call zombie companies. The COVID has exposed such a weakness and such a demand or change in the way that people lead their lives that there's no way that any reasonable <laughs> case can be made that these companies will come back in any viable fashion. Well, that they should get prioritization in terms yeah. of the, the money that's being made available while people have lost their jobs, while people have no really no means of even paying rent, no less mortgages right. and so forth. And this is what happened too, is the money that was supposed to go to small businesses, I think mm -hmm. most people have heard this story by now, 
tiny percentage went to small businesses. It went to the top 600 companies at, at, at a maximum rate, which was $10 million. All right. these little mom and pop companies and mid-sized companies didn't get a darn thing. You know, very few of them. Well, they got it, but they didn't get nearly as much as they should or nearly exactly. as much as they needed. Yes, many of them got it. Many of them got it very slowly, too, months later. Some of them haven't even received it now. We just saw a news program where it said $455 billion hasn't even been spent. And exactly. they want to call that money back instead of actually give it to people. We've seen the bread lines or the food lines oh. miles long in Houston, Texas and Dallas, Texas. Um, middle class people, people have never had so-called food insecurity are now having it. And where is Congress on this? They're playing political football with it. They, can, they do not want to. And in that initial bailout, they gave the vast majority of it to huge multinational corporations who use that money to buy back their own stocks and artificially inflate the market back up again. Not, yeah, heard, not to guarantee jobs. Right. Not to guarantee jobs. They're firing people left and right. Okay. And the government is letting them without accountability use it to again benefit the top people in the companies and not all the workers and the consumers. That's that and reading an article just yesterday, it's a tiny percentage of the money that went to the small businesses as it was sold to us. So here we are now. This is where we're sitting. And some people, some economists are talking about. Uh, the fact that we're, our markets are leveraged to the hilt, which you can explain a little bit, um, to a factor of 20 times and, and even far more than that. There's nothing real happening here. It's like you said earlier, just some kind of fairy tale you can buy into or believe in or not. There's nothing at the core of it. So what's at the core is real people with real businesses and real personal needs that are not being met. And that's the part we're going, when we talk, have our second talk about this, we're going to go in, into all of the different ways in which this can begin starting being reestablished, rebuilt in a completely new way than what we've been doing around, at least in this country and the West for the last hundred years. So um, any, let's, any kind of closing comments you want to yeah, make on I, where I, we are I, now I, in a tease? I want us to, because this really leads into the next episode, I want us to really, I'm going to really impress this upon all of us. We were snowed. We've done this with our agreement, not just against us. Remember when they tried to, during the George Bush Jr.'s thing, tried to privatize Social Security? Yes. And what a bonanza that would have been. And people finally thought that that was too, <laughs> too bright a line to cross. Yeah. They did something very similar to that with your retirement savings. They went from defined benefit in stable investments where you get X amount of percent added every year to what's called defined contribution, 401ks in which they got people to basically force people to invest in the stock market to fund their retirement. So when you get that much people in on that Ponzi scheme, and now these people are thinking, oh my gosh, my retirement really is based on the stock market. So now you become a slave to the corporations. They're holding the gun to your head. You don't make sure that our stock is up there. You don't get retirement. You're going to have to work. You're not going to have any security. We know Social Security doesn't pay you enough. So they got us. They led us down that primrose path to where we said, okay, 
and also greed. We're going to invest in the stock market because that's the only place where we're getting return. And I want to be rich, rich, rich. And I want to have an extra vacation home. So we have been led to engage in a corrupt system as a means of survival. Think about that. We need to actually invest and find ways to invest in a system that's not corrupt, that's healthy, that's humane, and that gives us what we need on a basic quality of life level, not quantity of goods, and not competitive, but collaborative, where we're working together. And we're really at kind of the end line for this competitive approach because it's unsustainable. And those people who've, who've made the stock market their God and pinned all the retirement savings on the stock market, will the stock market itself be bailed out? And in fact, will the Fed buy up stocks in the next downturn? They probably will. They probably will. That's how corrupt it is. But if you notice, more and more money has to be piled, more trillions. This time it'll be probably five to 10 trillion will be poured in with lesser and lesser effect. What we're seeing is an end game here, okay? When you pile more money into something to try to save a corrupt system or a bankrupt system and you get lesser and lesser effect, just think of it in terms of your own body, okay? <laughs> you can pop all the vitamins in there or whatever or, or vaccinations, but if your underlying body's real reserve and health is beginning to diminish and you're not creating the foundations for that, you will get to collapse. And that's what we have to anticipate now and we have to develop the healthy alternative before the collapse actually happens. So we can talk about that in the next session, but I'm gonna tell you right now, we've given you the 100 year history here of financialization, privatization, top-downization, getting us addicted to the top-down and the global elite for our own welfare, our own survival, and we know where this ends, okay? We can see the trajectory, okay? So, um, yeah, that's why I wanted to have this hundred year glimpse right. at the whole thing because right. what's happening again? Now we say we're starting to see little headlines about, oh, got to brace ourselves. Could be a confrontation coming on with Iran. Right. Just as we're about to change administrations, right. we tried to pick a war with them, what, a year ago, you mm -hmm. know, murdering Soleimani and all this. Right. This stuff goes on historically all the time. It's right. part of the economy. It's part of what drives the economy. We need to be alert. We need to start understanding the mechanism that we're involved in so that right. we can intelligently disconnect from it in every way that we can I and start you, creating the new. Pardon? I love what you just said, Regina. It was a perfect summary and demonstration. We need to understand the mechanisms. Yeah. And we've done stuff on conspiracy theory most conspiracy theory is exactly the opposite. It's a distraction by getting you to pretend to understand a pretend mechanism that may have a partial bit of truth to it, but it's highly manipulated and misdirected. What we're saying here in this talk between you and I, these are the real mechanisms, okay? Right. The real people, the real swamp. <laughs> and boy, it's a business plan. It is not a conspiracy. They don't even try to hide it, okay? But it is, it is in your face, and we do have to deal with it. A lot of people like to scramble to conspiracy theories or new age thinking because they feel overwhelmed by it. But I hope this interview, this conversation we're having, it takes a little of the intimidation out of it. Yeah. It's a very simple process of moving from one thing. It's not just bad. It's created. 
things within us and challenge creative challenges for us that can help empower our movement forward if we stay present and if we begin to really understand by contrast what a healthy system looks like right. from the ground up and cooperative and collaborative rather than top down and competitive and disaster and pain oriented, joy oriented, talent oriented, genius shared oriented. That is possible and we're gonna talk about that. Yeah, I think what happens is people become overwhelmed because of the uh, massive uh, nature of the web behind all of this that we we seemingly have no control over. But as I've put up in my little pyramid, when I inverted that pyramid, we, the 7 billion plus of us, are the ones that have the power. We've just been tricked. We've right. just been drawn into someone else's business plan. And so now we're going to find in our next episode a way to disentangle from it in as many ways as possible. So Zeus, I want to thank you. And also I'm really happy that you've been showing up on the Kaiser Report on Max Kaiser's show recently mm -hmm. uh, from the philosophical uh, look at it and societal look on it uh, down to the bones of the economy. And so people can find you on uh, the Kaiser Report as well. And also yeah. your own website and your own, your own vlogs at uh, citizenzeus.com. So That's right. anyway, Thank you. I'll see you in just a minute. And then we'll continue this conversation next time on how we're going to put these solutions together and really build a healthy economy, considering we're in this situation right now where everything is kind of shut down because of COVID. Okay. But there are ways around it. All right. Thank Beautiful. you, Zeus. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Again, everybody, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And you can go to citizenzeus.com and see related articles and also some of his uh, video blogs on these topics. Um, he's a crack on researcher, as you can tell. And I hope this has put a little bit of sanity and background around this discussion of what we're coming out of the last hundred years so we can see the absolute necessity to start engaging in what we have to build next. So until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.